I, I'm going with Alan. I just wanted to hear him say Pootsie again. Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. I'm Alan. I'm Casey. And this is Raj. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, Bonnie is on assignment and we are going to be talking pluralism. And for our segment, we're bringing back an old one. I don't think we've done this segment since episode 84, and it is called Apple Dash, which I'm very excited about. It should be a good time. So pluralism, we're just going to get right into it today. No, we're not going to waste any time, mince any words. Raj, this is, I think, your kind of, I don't know, pet topic, right? This is something that you've suggested on several times, and we kind of hinted at it at our last episode, the idea of pluralism. So Set it up for us. What are we talking about when we talk about pluralism? And then let's ring the bell and uh, start going because I have a feeling there's going to be some disagreements here. Awesome. Oh, good, good. I I can't. I I love it when other people are wrong. It's great. (laughs) So that's the way to start (laughs) an episode on pluralism. (laughs) Actually, Bonnie's not here, so none of us will be right. Okay, there you go. Well, um, not my words. But uh, to to borrow the words and thoughts of Diana Eck at Harvard University, they have a a project called Pluralism.org. Great resource. So check that out. But essentially, I mean, pluralism has been misunderstood in many different contexts in many different ways. But here's here's a synopsis of, of what she has to say. And you can find it on that website. First, pluralism is not diversity alone but the energetic engagement with diversity. So diversity can mean, you know, I live in an Indian neighborhood, Alan's down the street in an Irish neighborhood, Jeff's down the street in a French neighborhood, and Casey's down the street in a native Latino, Latinx neighborhood. I'm sorry to interrupt, but why did you go French with me? Just out of curiosity. Not that there's <laughs> oh, anything you, wrong with that. Did you say that, you were French? No. I never said I was French. Do I oh. look French? Anyway. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I, I don't know why that triggered. It was upsetting to me, but <laughs> no I, idea. I am I am German wow, Italian. Where did I get Not that, that, that makes the sense. I don't oh, know where German got Italian, French from. that's what yeah. it was. Manildi. How's that French? Yeah, I can't I'm, even I don't know. I don't I apologize, man. I got that wrong. That's it's a, all that's the same, an important right, detail. That's an important detail. I really have some things no, to figure no, out because I don't know why that all of a sudden <laughs> like irked me so much. <laughs> Apologies to any people who are proud of their French heritage. I uh... yeah yeah for real. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Off to such a a good and, oh, wow. and kind start. But you can have you can have these communities like that happens in many uh, urban clusters and people will walk by each other. Um, so there's diversity, but not really. Engagement. People don't know much about each other. And another aspect of pluralism is the active seeking of understanding across lines of difference. So right there, I call Jeff French. I know a little bit about his his history. Where, where Why did that stick in my head? I'm wrong. He said he's German and Italian for some reason. That's French. But if I just assumed that he looked French and wasn't in Seeking understanding actively with him, I'd, I'd never know. Third, pluralism is not relativism, but the encounter of commitments. 
So here's the part that I think is really wonderful. This, this paradigm does not require us to leave our identities or our com- commitments behind. For, clur- for pluralism itself is the encounter of commitments. So you can be distinct and in relationship. And fourth pillar, pluralism is based on dialogue. And that entering dialogue with your distinctiveness in relation and learning about another person's distinctiveness, building friendships like like we have, offers space for real understanding. And, and you don't have to lose your identity, your belongings, your commitments to be in relationship with someone else who has a different belonging, different commitments, and different identities. So for you, why is this an important issue? Because the definitions you, you gave, I would assume, are things that you – adopt today. So as a post-evangelical podcast, who all of us have come from some fundamentalist background, why is it important to define those things? And how was, because you, you to go out of your way to say pluralism is not relativism, that's coming from a place, right? Like at some point you were told or exposed to the idea that pluralism is relativism. And I know that in a lot of my circles growing up in church, relativism was like borderline the F word. Like <laughs> you, any stray into that kind of uh, thinking was uh, a road straight to hell. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. You know, and anything can be used in multiple ways. The The reason pluralism is important to me is as – somebody who comes from a country that was colonized by the British Empire, and part of that was bringing Christianity with them. In my family heritage, our basically our ethnic identity was stripped away from us. We were told um, that the music we did and embraced as part of culture and worship was the devil's music. You can't play drums that well, and it lead to anything good. You can't have rhythm. Um Etc. We talked about the pipe organ in a previous <laughs> episode. You know, there's that, and then also um, dress was a big thing. Men were pretty much told they need to be in Western style clothes, suits, ties, and women kind of were left alone with their saris. But the jewelry and other adornments were kind of uh, taken away, at least from this brand of of missionaries. Uh, so. The identity that not only was the theology of conservative Christianity presented, but a a British culture was also presented as being superior. So the faith was superior to Hinduism because it honored poor people in the here and now, which is kind of cool. Um, but it also promoted British culture as being better than indigenous Indian culture. Uh, rather than saying, hey, we've got this religious paradigm, we think it'd be cool, but your culture's awesome. Um, we're not trying to co-opt or diminish it. So in that sense, um, having distinctiveness and being open to others uh, is is important. I think that's a, a, an integral element of pluralism. Raj and I had a conversation about this years ago in your kitchen, and it was kind of in unpacking everything that we've brought with us from our previous contexts. For me, this is one of the big questions for everybody who leaves evangelicalism or is kind of deconstructing their faith that, that, that they were given, especially if their faith was exclusivistic, 
which we can say evangelicalism is, right? Jesus is the only way to God. Uh, you're going to go to hell if you don't know who Jesus is, and you're going to burn for eternity. There's nothing more exclusive than that. And one of the questions is like, well, once I've left my community that was kind of cloistered from the world, and now I'm suddenly interacting with all these ideas and people around me, I realize our country is like the most pluralistic that there's pretty much ever been like religious pluralism. There's all these different groups. People are actually learning about each other. They're taking time to like, listen, to learn about different cultures and religions. And it's so weird to step into that space with all of the assumptions of an evangelical Christian, Uh, which, you know, I heard Raj say that's, that's the devil's music. Like if I can try to get back into how I used to think, when we talked about other religions, it was always from the, the vantage point of learning about them as a cult or about the ways that they're wrong. And it was never uh, someone speaking from within the tradition about their own tradition. It was always a Christian telling you about, hey, this is what a Hindu is. This is what a Mormon is. This is what Jehovah Witnesses. This is what this person is. This is how they think, and this is why they're wrong. I think that for a lot of us on this journey, we really have to wrestle with the fact that Maybe what we were given in terms of exclusivity is dead wrong. I mean, there's other things that are, that are dead wrong, right? That we've like kind of unpacked and that weren't helpful. I think this is one of those things that does more damage kind of than anything else I was given to hear that someone else's experiences of God or of the sacred or of truth is demonic. That, yeah. that, that's like, uh, that puts a barrier between me and my friends around me. I mean, like, that's one thing Raj and I had talked about was pluralism is just being a good friend. <laughs> I mean, it's not talking at people. It's sitting with them and listening to them and hearing from them. So I, I think that it's an invitation, definitely. And I want to get into particulars later in this conversation. I don't want to dominate it right now. Um, You'll dominate it later. <laughs> I didn't mean that. I don't want to dominate it later. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> well, it, but your your point, Alan, exclusivity. I would say exclusivity is is antithetical to pluralism, right? And and, and that's, that's a I, great word. Yeah, because thinking about the opposite of, of what that yeah. is. Yeah. And I'd love to dig into some of like um, why Christians have gone that path, and when, that you don't have to go that path. You can still be a Christian with all of your commitments. Like that definition from X says, you can still have your commitments, but you can enter into this relationship with other people that's defined by embracing pluralism as opposed to opposing it. Absolutely. I think of hobbits. That, that they are counter, they are counter uh, pluralism. They are anti-pluralism, right? Um, they live in their own world. They do not want to be bothered by anything outside of the Shire. And what happens when you engage with a world outside of the Shire? You're transformed by, by the experience of others, the people that you wander with on your journey, right? And so pluralism is really important to me because it expanded my, my horizons, right? Living in India, going and spending some time in Latin America. I mean, any time that you wander outside of your own, your own safety and that could be even in your own neighborhood, right? Just depending a different uh, worship tradition than than one you grew up in, you it gives you the the opportunity to expand your horizons. I don't want to be a shire or a shire person. I don't want to be a hobbit, and I constantly am challenging myself to to step outside of my comfort zone so that I can experience something different and that will challenge my own experience. Uh, I think that that's one of the best parts about leaving 
uh, tradition that says there is no other way. Right. And, and I think that that's, that's an important thing in terms of like the real world consequences of pluralism, right? Like Alan was talking about his formative years being like, here's how we define everyone else and how they're wrong. And then that frames that relationship. It creates an immediate agenda. Well, we need to convince them that they're right. But, and again, I, I want to hear everyone else's experience on this, but Alan and I, as two straight white males, we got to dictate those things. But what is it like to be on the other side of that coin, being the victim of pluralism, being the one that's told that's wrong? Like, Raj, your experience as an Indian man and Casey, your experience as a gay man, like how were those tables flipped where the lack of any kind of pluralism affected how you felt you needed to fit in or how you needed to act or code switch or whatever we want to call it. And I think that those are the real things too, is like the day-to-day life. Because we, even when we talk about American culture and we say like the reality of it is we're diverse, but what's the the number one uh, metaphor that we use to talk about it? We talk a melting pot. And the illusion of that is, is that we become one, is that everyone assimilates into this diverse thing. But what we're really saying is everyone, you know, assimilates into white or normalized culture and that there's right. there's a danger to that is that is i think the the most important thing about pluralism is the the ability to be able to hold distinct spaces and not create a new quote unquote normal or a new one yeah uh, w- oneness is is dangerous yes it it's very dangerous i mean in extremes you're you're talking about extermination of of groups of people but pluralism right, um, itself but, is a oneness though like the, the 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 tenets of learning from each other and giving space to someone else, like that kind of atmosphere is building that's like a one thing, a thing where, hey, the world is okay where differences live. So like but this is what cons- this is what more conservative people would say. They would say, well, you're creating a new oneness. You're saying tolerance is important and tolerance itself is intolerant. You know, all of those kind of arguments is what people bring up. Yeah. And that's. You know, I'm not bringing that up for myself. I'm just saying. I, yeah, and I guess I guess I'm at the point where you know people have the right to be dumb, and people have the happy the first thing that people hear at the beginning of this people, episode. People have the yeah, people, people have, have the right to be dumb, the, and and the right to be ignorant. I mean, it it's it's just true, and there's nothing you or I can do to really change that for someone else. Well, hopefully we'll be willing to stay in relationship with people who are saying, you know, maybe I should think about this differently. But, um, you know, togetherness is not oneness. And and there is there's real power in togetherness, especially when you have people from diverse settings coming together for a common cause or a common goal, even if that's just food and fellowship. Um, or or getting a ring to Mount Doom because you know sometimes you just got to do that. But in my previous context, there was never there was never a reason for that togetherness. I've I've done like a a, a thought experiment. They would say nothing good ever comes from that. You know, you could feed someone, but they're all still going to go to hell. Like it actually covers up the differences that they should be looking at. I, I did a mental experiment with people from my past, and I visited a uh, a mall one time. For seminary, and I'm supposed to write down all the religious iconography in the mall. It's set up, it's built like a cathedral, like just the classic structure. There's all these different things, and like there's no other space in the world where there's a lack of God, but a mall is pretty close to that. Like there's no mention whatsoever of anything sacred. It's very focused on buying shit. And uh, 
And as I was thinking about that, I was like, what would it be like to have the opposite? To have a mall where there's like, you go from one space to another and you've moved from a synagogue to a, um, to a church to like um, the mosque area to this area where there's people meditating. And I was like, would, would Christians even be a part of a structure like that? Would they pay rent to be inside of a, a, a building that celebrated all these different religions? And I, when I asked people and they said flat out, no, they would never give, like they would never be a part of supporting something like that because it encourages people to experience the incorrect way or the ways that are going to lead them to hell. And so for me, that was like, wow, this, this turned into like, a thought experiment that shows the resistance to the idea of even being in society together, of being friends of people who were in different traditions. I used to, I used to think that Christianity was the only way it was the only true way. It was the only carrier of truth. And at one point I realized if we can't step outside and kind of critique what we've come from, or at least explore other traditions, you just kind of have to hope you were born into the right one. Right. And that's that's a terrible way to live, isn't it? <laughs> right. Because like if I was born into a different religion and I'm told by that religion to never open the door, never look outside, never explore or meet new people like Casey's, you know, the hobbits and the human beings in Middle Earth and stuff, never go out go out there. You just kind of have to hope that you're you're getting it right. And to me that that robs me of ownership over like doing spirituality. And correct me if I'm wrong, but um, part of this is that people don't honor the way that they do spirituality for themselves. Like we don't, we don't honor that spirituality is, is an art as much as it is a science or something. And that we're responsible for what it creates, for what it does with other people. And uh, we don't honor our own spirituality. We're not going to honor the spirituality of other people. Yeah. But this also goes back to occupation, right? I mean, and control. The reason why they don't want you to go out and look is because uh, they are afraid um, that you will not fall in line. I mean, that's that's the biggest thing. There is a there is a normative way of being, and it, for you to step outside of that separates you from what is expected. I, I think it's more than just what's expected. I think they're afraid I'm going to go to hell. I think my sure. my pastors and people who loved me in the past told me not to read the Book of Mormon, told me not to read the Quran, told me not to talk to people who are different than me because they thought I would burn for eternity if I somehow went down that path, that I would let Satan in, Satan get a foothold is what they would say. Yeah, prop, propping up ignorance about others is a very powerful tool that lots of communities engage in. You know, they, they are it, culturally, religiously, uh, even, even in communities, you know, talking about um, – like neighborhoods with, with different groups of people. You know, people will tell you, don't walk through that neighborhood. They, they don't want you walking through that neighborhood. Um, so there's like this fear. Now, some of that may be a concern for one's safety. Some of that may be, we don't want you making friends over there because, heaven forbid, what if you marry one of them? You know, that, that actually plays a role in, in biblical studies, too. When you hear Christians in ancient history talking about other groups, you have to recognize that they're they're representing those other groups in a certain way. Like you hear Paul talking about temple prostitution and all that kind of stuff. That's not from those people's mouths saying this is how we do our religion. You're you're getting someone else's perspective that's kind of antagonistic against it. So just basic like history is learning to listen to people speak for themselves rather than being represented. Yeah, exactly. I think the main problem is that it's easy. It's easy to have clear, delineated, 
ways to approach the world and pluralism is hard, right? Because it's not just as because then because we can make the same mistake with with living in in a pluralistic sense by saying that it's just easy, just open your heart and love everyone. But it's hard. Like you have to deal with appropriation. Like how much do I enter into someone else's community? How can I just appreciate and not consume? Like there's so many different levels, and it's hard and it's it's humiliating at times, right? Like as someone who's trying to always understand someone else's point of view uh, in a culture where I can easily just hide behind the fact that I am who I am, a white straight male. And it's humiliating sometimes to to say the wrong thing and be called out for it. And it's hard. It's hard. And I don't, people don't want it hard, right? That's why we, we, you know, gravitate towards xenophobia and nationalism and all this kind of stuff is because all that other stuff is messy. It, 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 you know, it colors outside of the lines and instead of learning to appreciate and just keep it at that, we can't like, and I think some of it's coming from a good place, right? Some of it's also our tendency to universalize, right? We have this good experience. Everyone needs to experience because it was so good for me. I want to share this and that turns into, well, no, this is the only way because I experienced that way. And inevitably, anytime we get into a political conversation, an ideological conversation, it always comes down, well, that's not my experience. Well, okay, but why? Let's leave it at that. Okay, that's not your experience, but that's my experience. How can we just sit in that paradox? And that's, to me, the fundamental like disconnect. And it's it's why it's 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 a it's a spiritual discipline. It's practice. It's something that we have to desensitize ourselves to over time, while at the same time holding an awe and a and a wonder at someone's difference in a way that's wow, that's amazing. Like, and just leave it at that. Just leave it at that, and not even go into that next place of well, I wish I could do that, or maybe I'm gonna try it. You know, and and that's Amen. that's so hard. That's so hard. But it's yeah. worth it. Like the work is worth it. Like right now where I'm in and where I am at in my life, I feel like, man, I can just sit in appreciation of where someone else's it is and not I don't have to find a common ground. In fact, sometimes I can just appreciate that there is no common ground and just take that person's experience and that person's life at face value for the way they say it and be fine with it. Not have to prove anything. Well, they, yeah, there's a lot of checkers <laughs> layers to, to that idea but I, I I really like what you're saying Jeff and and for me the the word that I that that works for me in those contexts is reverence um you know I'm not I'm not seeking to mimic necessarily or whatever uh, and it's weird because once you become clergy in a kind of an established uh church or whatever that you get these strange invitations that to these like secret meetings that no one else knows exist, like clergy get togethers that are interfaith or multi-faith. And you're talking about really cool things. And, and, and in those settings in the Bay area in particular is where I had my first opportunity to do that, um, to make friendships with clergy from other religious traditions was really powerful. And one of my favorite experiences was going to the mosque and saying prayers, being invited to say the the prayers, the Muslim prayers, and you know the movements, and actually uh, growing up in in my home and in most of my cousins' homes, we also lay prostrate when we were praying. Um, the whole family, or if you were at church and you had the ability to move chairs, you would literally scooch down. You, your shoes were off already. You didn't enter the sanctuary with shoes on, um, and then you'd lay prostrate 
and pray. And those prayers would take forever. You know, kids would fall asleep down there. Um, so that connection, but also recognizing, you know, somebody asked, well, hey, that was so meaningful to you. Do you think you might incorporate Muslim prayers into your into your practice? And I was like, no, <laughs> you know, it, it's not mine to do, but I can have a reverence for and appreciation for participate when I'm invited in. But it's it's not mine. I, I need to I need to learn what does my tradition offer? What does my heritage offer that can connect to that same kind of uh, feeling of being made humble or making oneself humble and and subject to forces that are much larger than yourself? That's that's the great irony is that you let go of that need to find a common ground and there is common ground. There is reverberations between different religious traditions that hold things in common, like the idea of the sacred, the idea of humility, the idea of even transcendence or, you know, death to something old and life towards something new, like resurrection. Absolutely. I mean, those those moments where I've been with people who have different religious convictions and like my vibration and their vibration is set off like at the same time is a really cool thing to experience. And the moments of dissonance where they're different, they'll show up even more and they're instructive and, and they help me and they help the other people kind of clarify who they are and what they believe. Um, I, I do want to, um, I do want to, from a Christian perspective, kind of say why pluralism means a lot to me from my Christian perspective. Uh, I, there, there are only a couple places in the Bible where you hear some of the exclusive language of Christianity, specifically John. John is the, probably the most famous one. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. The whole book of the Gospel of John begins with the idea that Jesus is this incarnation of something transcendent and other, and like the logos, the reality behind the universe, like something universal. And so when Jesus speaks and says, I am the way, Jesus is saying, I'm an incarnation of the way, something universal, something that is that you can find in other places is how I read it. And instead, we've taken that and said, no, this is like Jesus is the only way, the the only place where you find um, an expression of God or the expression of God. And I would say Jesus is the expression of God. But in my faith, it's been very important to say no, God can show up in other places too. If Jesus is the incarnation of something universal and transcendent, it should not surprise me as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, to find that stuff other places, to find it throughout history, to find it in um, literature, in other religions, in their practices. And I know that that is like a dangerous line between saying, oh, you're all really Christians and you don't know it, right? Like that would be the inappropriate place to take that. But that common ground stuff, the stuff where you you discover that other people hold reverence for sacred things, like we can celebrate that as Christians, right? Like that's it doesn't have to look like us to say that God can participate in it, and then I can learn something from other people. Yeah, that's a radically absolutely. different perspective than how I grew up with, and a lot of our listeners probably grew up with. Mm-hmm. So then, the invitation is to find God everywhere, to look for God everywhere. Um, I think that, that that is probably the most important point. When you, when you are wandering through the world, what are you looking for? Instead of, I grew up in a tradition, I mean, we walked through the streets of India praying out demons. There were demons everywhere. 
right? And we and when we were in San Francisco, we were we were praying that God would pray out the gay demons or whatever. You know, the invitation was to find evil everywhere, to notice the evil, the darkness, mm-hmm. or to find difference and label it evil. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's yeah. right. <laughs> and I think that what this, what you're saying, Alan, is what I believe, which is um, instead of looking for the darkness and the evil, the other, the option is to look for God in everything, in the trees, in the sun, in your neighbors, in gay bars. You're going to be a lot, if you, if you do that, Casey, if you choose that way, you're going to be wrong a lot less often, you know, because like, because we're, all of us exist within God, God is permeating all of this, or we can, we can say that from like, and how you treat people begins to change also. Right. Yeah. Because if you're if you're if you're starting from a place that says someone is demonic and broken and you're sent to fix them, your relationship is disgusting. It can't it can't be pluralism. (laughs) That that cannot that cannot embrace pluralism. Right. Like you cannot learn from someone that you believe is an agent of Satan there to destroy everything holy that you have. We, we, We had an episode of on Satan before. And I and I think what I came to was whether Satan exists or not. The idea of Satan is shitty because it's led people to demonize other people. It's not helpful. It's not helpful to say this is like a demonic person that I cannot learn from. Satan doesn't well, I mean, exist. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to say he doesn't exist? No, I, or, I did say it. I, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It, 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 and it Maybe made, he uh, made you say that. Da- <laughs> I mean, Dante invented the devil as we know it in Western society. You know, it's not really a scriptural thing. It's a, a literary thing, which is cool. I mean, it, you know, there's there's evil in the world. You know, I, I don't think there's a debate there, but whether there's this entity that perpetuates it is. I would say it's literary, one. though, even in the Bible, like some of the concepts of like, you know, the prowling lion seeking someone to devour, like that metaphorical stuff. I think ancient people were capable of literature, capable of like communicating universal truth. Oh, absolutely. Poetry I'm just talking metaphor. about Satan. Right. Yeah. Like the so, devil. Right. Jeff, you you had asked you had asked a question earlier about how do how do I experience this in my own in my own life? Right. I I can I can uh, tell you one of the most common phrases I get, which is, "When are you and Jose getting married?" I I remember in my previous context as the church was splitting over them hiring me as an out gay man, um, the pastor called me into his office and said, "So," and this is in uh, two thousand and I guess two thousand and fourteen when. Uh, the Supreme Court decided that it was okay for gay people to get married. Um, this was like the next month. Okay, uh, the pastor calls me in and says, "You know, a lot would be solved if you and Jose would just get married. Just get married." And my response was, "One of the best parts about being uh, queer, LGBT, um, is that we can navigate our relationships any way we want to." And marriage is not one of the things that defines whether our relationship is something uh, of any worth, of any value. And so that's one of the biggest ways that I see that sort of um, normativity seeping into queer culture um, and the expectation from, from heteronormative people to be married, to be monogamous, to live in a very specific way that has been set up for them. Um, forever, which is clear, right? Like, how many times in 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 an offensive way have you heard like, "Well, who's the who's the wife?" 
you know, like that's right. who, who's yeah, the, that's right. uh, and even from people that, that I've woman? experienced who are quote, unquote, yeah, who's the woman for quote unquote pro- progressive people who, who ask that question and are totally oblivious to why that that's ridiculous and asinine to even ask someone in that situation. It just blows my mind. And to me, that's the posture of being pluralistic is that we, we have to put ourselves in a place to, to where we learn the most when we're wrong. We learn the most when we make a mistake. And that's antithetical to even just the way that we think in American culture is that you, you want to make sure you get it right. And it's certainly antithetical to evangelical culture where you have to follow God's will when in the, the implicit message being you need to always be right. And anytime you're wrong, that one wrong thing, that one wrong decision, that one wrong thing that you say can lead you down a path of, of destruction. Again, and and I think, again, it's I was saying this earlier about protection and safety, right? I think that in Jose and I's relationship, the way that my family has responded to seeing the way we navigate that um, and the mutuality and respect that we have for each other seeps into my my siblings' relationships. There's a sense in which they see the mutuality that we have and they want to mimic that. I th- Again, I think there are things that we offer each other, right? This is what we're talking about. Like you don't, you're, you don't become gay um, or lesbian um, when you hang out with queer couples, but maybe something changes in the way that you treat your spouse or partner by being in that relationship. Because right. you get the opportunity to see a new paradigm, something that is foreign to your place and you can appreciate it for what it is. I just read, I read that chapter in Pure that talked exactly about that. There's all these people who... They're they're gay or lesbian, and they're hearing, when are you going to get married? Like the stuff, Casey, that you're talking about. And the idea is that people are still uncomfortable with things like gay sex. That's really what it's all about. They want to somehow clamp it down, define it, somehow put it into a context where it makes it more palatable for them. And that's really what it comes down to is that – you know, they're okay with the idea of you being of, of gay marriage, but they're not okay with the real human beings who are in real relationships and like the, the connection there. I had just read that today and I was like, wow, I never would have thought of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I missing Bonnie for this particular thought in, you know, for sure. But, you know, Casey and Jeff, you talked about being from in your intersectionality, you, you've got the dominant level in, in your, your white, your male, your hetero. So you've got, you've got all those things, Alan, you've got those things kind of going for you, so to speak. Casey, myself and Bonnie in that context would have some of those things are missing, uh, from, from us being dominant in virtually every setting that we're, we're in. But one of the things, Casey, and I was wondering if you'd be willing to explore this out loud is when you are in relationship, when I'm in relationship with people that are in multiple ways represented by the dominant classes than, than we are. And it's kind of a new and emerging friendship. Um, And maybe they're not, they don't have experience being in relationship with a gay man or a gay couple, just like folks that may not have experience being in relationship with uh, an immigrant from South India. Do you ever feel kind of like, Oh boy, I I wonder how awkward this is going to get. And you sort of prepare yourself, um, kind of hoping that there'll be a really great connection, but also secretly worried that they're just, it's just not going to work. It, it, you're not really going to be able to trust them in friendship. How many of you have seen the show Queer as Folk? Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Um, it was a show that was uh, started in the UK and then came to uh, the United States. And it's about um, gay men living through the early 90s and 2000s or late 90s, or early 2000s. I mean, it talks about it's it's ba- it's really dramatic and sad because it's basically amplifying everything that gay men experience. But there's a really interesting dynamic between two of the main characters, um, Brian Kenny and Michael, who are best friends, and they're constantly sort of wrestling with how they come in and out of the normative culture. Michael tends to be one who wants to, I can't believe I'm talking about this on a faith podcast. I love it. Okay. (laughs) So Michael, Michael wants to get married. He wants to have two and a half children live in New York and, or not New York, but anyway, Philadelphia or something, but wants to settle down because that will make him fit in with his family, with the community. And Brian Kenny lives on the other extreme of that which he he parties every night he's having sex with lots of people all the time and they end up in this really intense discussion about um you know living living on the edge of community normative community and not and brian kinney says to michael there are two kinds of straight people in the world michael those that hate you to your face and those that hate you to your back and sometimes that rings in my ears rush yeah uh honestly this sense that I'm always seen as a sex object or a deviant in some way. The history of calling gay men pedophiles and perverts is still alive and well. And so I find myself a lot of times um, cautious, actually, to spend time, especially with straight men, because my experience with them specifically has been pretty painful. So yeah, I do I do wonder and I am I am hesitant. And and that sometimes is hard in my role as pastor because my call is to love everyone and to be supportive of them. But I have had I have been in places and spaces where, you know, um I'm at a a function and everyone it's a swim party and someone has said like put your shirt on when pastor Casey's around. Oh wow. And so this wow. is my reality. Right. And uh, I don't know, Raj, if that answers your question, but I will say that Brian Kenny's, uh, you know, advice to Michael in some ways is something that I live with. It rings true, huh? Yeah. What, what about yeah. you, Raj? Uh, you well, talk first, about that? first, Casey, as your friend, as, as one of your straight male friends, <laughs> I, am, I am truly sorry for those things that have happened. I know I, you know, and probably not culpable in most of your pain, but if anything I've ever done or said or intimated contributed to that, I'm truly sorry. Uh, and I'm I'm grateful to you for being willing to give me a chance at at being in relationship with you because that that means a lot. It is you're crossing a dangerous boundary by being friends with me, and in a way, I'm crossing a bit of a dangerous boundary in being friends with you as someone who passes as white. You know, you've talked about that. But, you know, to be honest with you, when after I met Jose, I was like, oh, this is this is actually going to be OK. <laughs> it was like you're you're in loving, committed relationship to a brown man. So it was kind of like, OK, I, I literally could feel my body relax like, oh, OK, this is this is probably a good chance. This is going to be safe space. So this pluralism exercise is really hard. You know, I think Jeff and Alan, you both talked about the the complexities and challenges. And, you know, we all run the risk of 
doing the wrong thing and being misunderstood. And I think for you both, maybe that's that's one of the larger obstacles for you because there there are all kinds of assumptions. I can tell you this honestly. In brown circles, there are all kinds of assumptions we make about white men, some which are, you know, through experience and probability or maybe more well-founded than others. But it's it's still not right and it's not fair. So you you guys have to encounter that. Yeah, I, no, I we don't. I, I, so I, Jeff, so I, there's a couple of things I wanted to say and I've kind of like weighted things that Jeff had brought up. And the concept of learning, like you just – you said learning's painful. Cause you, cause you're wrong at different moments and you have to accept that you're wrong and then move past it. Like I've misunderstood someone. I've said the wrong thing. Little kids learn language better than we do because they're willing to be wrong more often. They don't let it shut them down completely. Right. They just move on like, Oh, I said that word wrong, but we're like, Oh, I said that word wrong. I'm a horrible person or I'm never going to get this right. I think for me learning about other people, cause that's a core tenant of pluralism is this willingness to like, to not be right all the time. And that, that, that alone is transformative for religious contexts, willing to not be right, especially Christian ones. And secondly, Casey and I are a part of a, a community of, of clergy that are learning ways to be better pastors and stuff. And one of the things that they had us do was think about our family and think about the obstacle, at least in my, in my group, the obstacle that we might be or the challenge that we might present toward our siblings or toward other people in our family. And for me, it was enlightening to actually sit down and think like, I think I'm a loving person. I think everything I do makes sense to me. But what would it look like for other people to look at me? What kind of challenges do I represent? You know, what kind of challenges do I represent as a brother? What kind of challenges do I represent as a student in a classroom who's always raising their hand and always talking and always answering stuff? Like what, what challenges do I present to other people? And if we're going to do that as Christian, hetero, or whatever, straight, white men, there's a lot to really think about. What challenges do I represent to the people around me? And especially other faiths. You know, my God, like what, what, and so thinking about that way is a spiritual practice. I agree. I think it was Jeff who mentioned that, that I think it was Jeff, that that's like a spiritual practice to embrace. Right. That that was well said, Alan. Yeah. And I think that we don't do a good job with that most of the time because we're too busy victimizing ourselves because, you know, today, especially it's hard to be a straight white male, you know, people say mean <laughs> things like to us all the time, show. you know, <laughs> like it's, it's Aren't there TV shows that that's like the whole premise is like, oh, it's so tough to be a, a male these days. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. What, was, isn't there that Tim Allen show, Last Man Standing? There's <laughs> that's actually what I'm talking a show. About. Yeah, yeah. Tim Allen. Stuff like that. Yeah. It's, it's tough. You know, it's tough out there because, but Raj, going back to what you were saying, like that idea that, you know, you know, that there are people from your background who have certain, you know, assumptions about white people when they go around that. I've never once even thought about that. I don't have to carry that with me all the time. It's not like something that I have to worry about in every context that I go to. And, and I like, okay, so well, like it's probably well deserved and I probably live up to a lot of those stereotypes and I probably have perpetuated those things in numerous different ways, not only in terms of race, but in terms of like sexuality and gender and all that kind of stuff. Like Casey, I can legitimately like apologize to you, even though I've never said anything about you or thought about you in any different way. I've been in that mode with other people. Like that has been 
that was a mode, right? Like it was, it was, you know, the whole joke in the nineties and early two thousands about like, you know, uh, assuming a gay man was going to be attracted to me just because that they were like all that shit that goes with that. Like that's, and I've been implicit in that. That that doesn't excuse me from anything, and and to know that I've I had the freedom without any consequence to be able to live in that mode and not think twice about it until recently, it means I wasn't listening. It means I wasn't opening my eyes. It means that I was not encountering the world in a way that I was supposed to be. And if we want to use the 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 religious terms, calling or as a disciple of Christ, I wasn't acting in those ways because I was not acting in a way in which I looked at the world as an opportunity to explore and to meet and to celebrate and to be in awe of. I was just trying to perpetuate my awe, right? Like I was trying to perpetuate my goodness, mm. my experience to everyone else because the, the underlining assumption of that was that my experience was the right one. It was the, the most important one because everywhere I looked was me. And and that's that's the problem that we live in. That's the problem with not only evangelical Christianity, but I see this so much in progressive Christianity. I mean, us white progressives sometimes are are just as bad because we're you know, amen. The the, <laughs> the carpet doesn't match the drapes <laughs> spiritually and ideologically speaking. You know, like we we present one way, but it's another way. And I just th- that's why it's important to have these conversations and and for us to be open and vulnerable about, about these things and be willing to be wrong and be willing to hear other people's experience and um the the most important thing that i've developed over the last decade is being able to sit in paradox to be able to sit mm. in things that once i was told do not align and can't coexist together and just be fine with it coexisting that way and i think it's more less about people too and it's i think part of how we do that is we try to be, we we all did that with our theology we did that with the bible we had to we had to make space for these things with our with our worldview and our ideology before it could really seep into the way that we saw other people and you know like my acceptance that the bible wasn't literal my doubting that there was no hell unfortunately had to come first before being able to accept a gay man and that's it and i regret that and i hate that but that was that was my journey yeah this is like a holy moment jeff Mm -hmm. like seriously i'm just allowing that to wash over me and it's healing yeah like to for all three of you thank you um because honestly i surround myself with gay men Mm -hmm. and straight women and that's it. I do not I do not spend a lot of time with straight men because I do not trust them. Well, we're the worst. And to call you to call you friends and brothers, um I mean that and I am grateful. Well, statistically, if you took all of us straight men and put us on an island, every other place would be safe. I mean, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's true. You know, I, uh, one thing I do want to highlight in this conversation is that sometimes categorizing and classifying people hides more than it actually enlightens us. I know as a chaplain, when I walked into a room and I knew a person was Mormon, I had a certain set of assumptions. But, um, like in the book Pure, I read, they say when you've met one trans person, you've met one trans person. You have not met them all, right? Like you, you're meeting one person. And so I think taking this concept of learning, of expecting to find other things and, and to be wrong, but to also learn from each other and be good friends to one another across religious lines and, and cultural lines 
is a recognition that not all people in a mosque or even in one family are going to be the same way. Like they're going to hold different ideas of who God is and how their faith works. That, that That's how it is for all of us, right? Like we don't agree on everything about faith and our faith, even when we do, whoever agrees with us the most, it expresses differently in our lives. So like pluralism is a fact of life. It just is like, we're all around people. We are learning about each other. Um, and embracing that is like, accepting that this is how life is, is that we learn from one another and that we have things to learn, you know? And yeah, pl- uh, pluralism should be a fact of life. Right. Well, yeah. I'm just saying it is in, in history. I think we're at a moment where we're learning so much. Uh, oh my gosh. So much. The interconnectedness of the human species is just incredible at this moment. And so I think I want to tell Christians like, hey, come on, come on out of the <laughs> the like 1500s. It's okay. Embrace <laughs> like the awe and wonder. Yeah. Yes. yes. We're on this giant spaceship floating through space together, right? Like we don't get to go anywhere else. Most of us. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe Elon Musk will send four or five people to Mars, but most of us are stuck on this goddamn ship together. And like, you're right, Raj. We, we, there are so many resources that we offer to one another. Not changing each other, but getting together to solve problems and do stuff that has to happen or like the spaceship itself is going to be uninhabitable for any of us. Right. But we have to do the work like like phrasing it that way is like, yes, that's true. But we also have to acknowledge that our experience in reality doesn't reflect like the facts of reality. Like we we create like we go out of our way to create the opposite of what's in front of us. I don't think Christians are invested in in creating. I don't think a, anyone a society, is. but 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 specifically Christians, and I really mean this, evangelicals. I don't think that they're interested in creating a good society of friendship with the people who are different, like a a place where like religious freedom is real. Or but why like, would why would they want to? I right, mean, like, don't. but but for me that that the importance of this, it's not just that though, you know, the world's going to die because of climate change. That is true. Like there's insects are going to be gone in a hundred years and it's going to collapse everything that actually matters. We should be working on that together across lines, but not learning about people. I just read the book, uh, the spirit catches you and you fall down. It's about the Hmong community, which is this Highland Chinese cultural, ethnic, religious group, like their, that their identity is, has been solidified over millennia. They've, tried to be conquered by so many different people, but they've always moved to highlands where nobody else wanted to live. And they've kept their culture intact. The CIA hired them back in the sixties or whatever during the Vietnam war um, secretly and destroyed their entire homeland was destroyed. They came over to the United States expecting to be war heroes. Instead, everyone saw them as refugees looking for handouts. And so like they lived in Minnesota and in Merced and this book is about a misunderstanding between American doctors and the religious practices of the Hmong, the cultural like disconnect. And there weren't enough people listening and actually going to someone's house, like sitting down with them and listening to them about the things they actually believed. And, and their little kids' lives are in the balance. So it's not – it's like there are individual human lives. I mean, Western medicine has its whole normativity thing going on, and it has a lot to offer – but like I working in a hospital, we're really internalizing and, and realizing that human beings are different from one to the next and actually taking care of each other requires learning about one another and sitting with each other. And that's a great that's a great book, Alan. You know, if anybody listening would like a 
kind of a a, a how to manual maybe and and a how not to manual. That book is a phenomenal, uh, honest, and difficult look at at what it takes to be in pluralistic relationship. And so maybe that even reading it would be like why this episode matters, why this topic yeah. matters. Yeah. Another thing I just want to uh, toss toss in this is um you know the notion of definitions labels uh it can be very limiting but on sort of in a nuanced way I think descriptors uh can be important and helpful as we try to develop relationships across boundaries. So I I mean uh, this might be a side topic but t- I I agree with that but at the same time if you've lived in society where you did not have a label to have a label is important. Like I mean I and this is my reading of kind of where we are in society like we keep adding acronyms to LGBTQ like so many not because and it, you, you can't see it as one way as like it's a label and in case forgive me I, you know I don't know if I'm overstepping my bounds, but it feels like you've had a whole society that hasn't acknowledged the existence of someone. And sometimes that term is that first sentence, that first step into feeling like, oh, I'm finally acknowledged. Like I'm finally in the overall conversation that I felt this far from. And I think it's maybe a progression or maybe it's not the labels themselves, but how we hold those labels. Uh, because I do think it's important for people to have uh, maybe labels the wrong word, but, uh, you know, yeah, I would, be I would defined in the culture, you know, descriptors, right. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know in, in a way, cause that can, that can be helpful and allow people to offer to you the descriptors they have for themselves. Yes, that's right. One of the things that I've been doing in youth group is asking the kids to, um, say their names, their grades and their gender pronouns. And it's fascinating to me. Uh, when you give people the opportunity to identify themselves, what they will share with you, right? That's right. That's so true. Who knew? Who knew? That's the difference between listening and studying someone, right? That's right. Any any final thoughts before we 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 close out this conversation and, and throw it to our listeners for for feedback? Yeah, you be you, be the best you you can be, because that's good for the whole world. And then be willing to let others do the same and be friends. That's right. And don't let anyone tell you what you are. You tell us. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and expect us to listen. Like, demand us to listen. Yeah, absolutely. And call us if you need help. Embrace the awe and wonder of God all around you. Everywhere. Literally everywhere. I would say it is thoroughly Christian to uh, embrace the idea of grace and God's grace toward humanity in all of its different forms, your grace toward other people and being in a society that, that embraces pluralism is something we should care about. Absolutely. should care about as a part of our spirituality. So I want to throw out a book. If you're reading this, if you're listening to this and you want to read something about other traditions from their perspective, there's a book called our religions, the seven world religions introduced by preeminent scholars from each tradition. And they go over Taoism, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, um, Buddhism. And so I've read the whole book and it is just amazing for me in my deconstruction. It was so important to be able to sit and listen to other people's sacred texts and their scholars. I turned around to my Christianity and I was like, Oh my God, how have I been looking at my own tradition? What are some new ways I can look at my own tradition and sit with the sacredness of my own texts and my own 
background. And I think if you're looking to kind of reconnect with yourself, try this. Try doing it with other traditions and your tradition being one set within seven. It might actually do do something pretty profound for you. All right. Well, let us know what you think. You can add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting at the show notes at irenacast.com slash 139. And also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links, including the link to the book that Alan just mentioned and a complete list of all the other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's irenacast.com slash 139. Uh, on the other side of the music, we'll be indulging in some lighter fare and playing a little round of Apple Dash. All right, so how this works is that this is our mesh of the game Boulder Dash and Apples to Apples. Uh, so in Boulder Dash, you're presented with the word. Everyone has to write down what they think the definition is or if they know the definition and you get a certain amount of points for how close you are or accurate you are to the actual definition. Uh, but where the apples to apples element comes into this is that whoever presents the word gets to choose which definition they like arbitrarily, like whether it tickles their funny bone or whether it is – intellectually stimulating or wherever they come from. So it's also a, a game of personality, right? We were trying to guess what that person is going to be uh, thinking and what's going to appeal to their sensibilities. Uh, so does that, that make sense to everyone? We, we on board with this? Let's do it. All right. So who, who wants to go first? I want to go first. Okay. Oh, Gardy Lou. Gardy Lou. I'm, I'm going to go with, uh, the person who stands in the bathroom and hands people napkins to dry their hands after they wash them, they uh, they go by the name Guardy Lou because because <laughs> they're guarding the Lou. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that what you, that's He's a Guardy Lou. He's going to give you yeah. a little spritz of perfume. Sure. So here, here's mine. Um, the protector of the garden. Frequently called by neighbors and friends, Lou. Oh, my God. Um, so I guess in adjacent to what Alan said, I would say it's Republicans who make bathroom laws. <laughs> oh, my God. You win. You win. You win the win. A warning before waste or water is thrown down from above. It's a warning? Oh, yeah. So like, like instead hey, of like. Out. Heads up or Gardilu. four or Geronimo, it's Gardilu. Is is the word itself the warning or you're just warning somebody down below you're about to throw out? I uh, think it's the warning. Bad stuff. All right. All right so I got, I got, Raj, you want to go? Am I good? Yeah. All right. Irenaceous. These are phrases that um, Ignatius said when he was irritated. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, that's that's, I'm gonna that's say, clever. I'm going to say... Um, tending toward peace or peaceful from Irene. I'm going to go with, uh, it's the equivalent of saying that's very white of you. Like Aaron being a very white male name. Like that's Irenaceous. That's, that's where I'm going with. <laughs> uh, Jeff wins again. <laughs> Wait, is it Irenaceous with an A or an I? It's an E. Doesn't oh. matter. It's how it sounds. It's going to be Irish, huh? Well, it's, uh, you're going to love it. Yeah. Like eerie. Uh, of pertaining to Ireland. or resembling a hedgehog. Oh, that's great. I actually really like that. 
Raj. So, so <laughs> is that is that like so like great if you're going to use that in a sentence, it would be like most metal bands in the '80s had arenaceous hair. In the description here, it says, uh, although she won't know what it means, never tell your female date that she is looking quite arenaceous this evening. Wow, they went they went that route with the definition. <laughs> <They> huh? <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right, Alan, what's your word? My word is obelisk. So obscure, people could care less. Couldn't care less. I'm thinking of harmony for some reason. Someone who's prone to circular logic. It actually is the word for the division sign. <laughs> you know, like divide with the dot. Only you dot. would. Be. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is. So I, I'm going to give it to Casey because it's the like exact opposite of that, right? Like division, harmony. I like that. That's really close. Thank you. Okay, I'll, Jeff. Okay, you ready for this word? Pooter. P-O-O-T-E-R. Pooter. D-E-R? T. Pooter. <laughs> I think we all know what that oh, is. Oh, I I actually think I might know. I'm a little worried that Alan might actually know I what this is. I actually might know. I think it's a doll. <laughs> I think it's a doll. I think it's a doll from the like 1920s or something that they would pull on a string. A pootsie baby. A pootsie They would call it a pooter. I, pooter sounds like pudding. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> Alan, are you going with the creepy doll analogy, or are you going to... Yeah, I'm okay. going with the little pootsie baby pooter doll that they would drag around. I, I would say it's the... They could say the, pooter uh, there. It's a, the, <laughs> the waste product from a sawmill. Okay. All right. <laughs> Alan, what was your definition again? What, what did you say it was? It was a what doll? A pootsie a pootsie. I, I'm going with Alan. Doll. I just wanted to hear him say pootsie again. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> it, so it I'm is, taking it that's not the actual answer it is actually a, a suction bottle for collecting insects and other small creatures <gasps> okay, oh I want a one a pooter ooh pooter that's cool does it hurt them or no that, I have a lot of ladybugs I think it's I, I, fun. I would guess it's like the equivalent of like you know the the little suction thing that picks up egg yolks like you kind of hey if I, I google pooter is it going to be safe I wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> but you know, Not go for that. it. No, I want to buy one, Jeff. <laughs> All right, Casey, back around to you. Mugwump. Oh, I think it's Australian for puddle. Okay, I'm gonna go with uh, the little deriding clap, like uh, Nancy Pelosi did. Oh yeah, because <laughs> you're whomping <laughs> someone's mug right to their face. You just womp womp womp. <laughs> Good for you. I was going to say it's the rival species to the Mogwai from Gremlins. Ooh. Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to give it to Alan, which is rare that I give credit to Alan. <laughs> I know, right? You know, we got to talk about that, Casey, someday. Alan, I'm giving you credit because it is a person who is truly independent. They, ha they are unbiased. Very nice. And so... um just like you gave me the opposite, right? With Nancy Pelosi's uh, <laughs> badass clap, which I feel like doing sometimes to people. Nothing to do with Australia? Sorry, Raj. Okay. You know, you know Raj, you know that if if there was even an ounce, I would have given it to you. <laughs> I'm, I'm Bonnie by proxy. That's right. <laughs> wow. I, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'll, I'll say it and then spell it. Impignorate. 
The G could be silent. I-M-P-I-G-N-O-R-A-T-E. Impignorate or impignorate. I'm going to say it is uh, take. <laughs> it is the act of curling something. Just like imps and pigs have their little curled tails, you're impignorating something. Nice. It is uh, a common pun. I mean, it is a word that is used in the Spider-Verse that Spider-Ham is from. So we impersonate people and they impignorate people. <laughs> <laughs> That movie's so world. good. Oh. Um, irate pigs. I don't know. You rate <laughs> to cast. Pigs. Wait, wait, are you saying pigs. you rate pigs, or are you saying irate like mad irate. pigs, <laughs> like angry, angry pigs? That's right. Um, I kind of like the angry pigs one. That's that's uh, oh my God. the imagery is is funny. Yeah, there you go. All right, Ellen. The word is. Criticaster. Oh my gosh, it's someone who um is like uh uh I I have an like an image of like a forecaster, a weather forecaster, but it's a critic forecaster. Someone who is like um forecasting people's criticisms. Like, oh here she comes. She's gonna read you to the floor. Not having to do with in any way, shape, or form fecal matter or flatulence. <laughs> You just doomed you yourself from getting a point now. <laughs> he's just going for the point. He's not. Even <laughs> he's going for the the. He's going for the it goose well. egg in this game. We we discussed ahead of time how my aversion for poop poopology, poo poo jokes. I think it's the lowest form of humor. Exactly, I agreed with you, or I mean that the definition of that word agrees with you. It is someone who purposely does things to irritate critics to draw them out and then kill them. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a good <laughs> turn. Real fast. That got dark really quick. <laughs> like, a, like, a, like a predator, right? It's, it's, the, it's the social equivalent of that little fish that has the pretty light that people come to and then it eats them. I, I'm going to give a point to, to Raj for playing to me, for knowing me. I appreciate that. Sweet. That Casey, you were pretty so close, far. actually. It actually means an inferior critic. <laughs> oh, really? Not a good critic is a criticaster. <laughs> just like a weather forecaster. They're just uh, weather dessers. That's what I call them. Right. Exactly. That's so ironic because where close. do most critics that suck go? They start podcasts. So, <laughs> hey, isn't that the yeah. truth? There, there's the cold open right there. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This is either going to end up a four way tie. Or someone's going to win. This is the last one. Not, I mean, not that I'm keeping track. Uh, <laughs> not that I'm keeping track. <laughs> okay. So the word is oxter. O-X-T-E-R. Oxter. I feel like I should know this. That's actually something wrong with me, but I feel like I should know words I've never heard before. It's, right. a, it's a hipster who hangs out at Oxford. <laughs> one who specializes in pranking oxen. <laughs> it's a very specific skill <laughs> the only thing i think of is tommy boy trying to tip cows <laughs> oh, that's good i'm gonna say no 
it's killing you that you don't know what it actually is. I know. Is. No, I'm just trying to think of like. <laughs> it looks like you're actually trying to recall the meaning of the word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I have, you're not I have in class, Alex. I have a you're problem. You're not in class, Alex. You're not in class, Alex. This is Alan. not a test. <laughs> I know, but cause it sounds so familiar, though. Uh, I'm just going to say uh, someone who loves throwing out really erudite unknown definitions of or unknown words because they love their Oxford dictionary and they go by people call them oxters. Wow. I'm actually very conflicted because uh, Casey's answer for what the word actually is gives me like, I don't know, for some reason, just a really fun image. Yeah. And then the randomness of (laughs) Raj's answer is great but then i'm i'm a p the the narrative like like closure of alan's answer like the fact that that was the actual answer <laughs> you're like <laughs> as we, a podcast host i can't like it's <laughs> I, I don't know where to go here <laughs> so i'm gonna have to just I'll as much as i like okay, honestly Jeff. hate to do this i'm gonna go with alan Yay. <laughs> like it, there's just something about the closure of that answer and the the connectivity to what we're doing um <laughs> The, the the narrative person I in pl- me I played to out. you, Jeff. I played you. Did. You did. You played me. You played me well. Like well. <laughs> like literally well played. Because that's exact. You appealed to my to my most uh, my most cherished. Uh, I don't know what you call it, but I love narrative and all that stuff. So, <laughs> do do you like appreciate like bookends as gifts? Oh well, yeah. Hey, literal since we're talking about words. Those are. Those are uh, the Latin word for that is inclusio. You know, like a bookend in a story. Don't ruin it, Alan. Okay. Just, <laughs> <laughs> just let it be. <laughs> I will kill it. Inclusio. I, I will stamp it into the ground. Okay. This so, moment, do you want to know what it actually this means? So sweet. Yes, I do. It is. It is quite simple. It is armpit. Armpit. It's another word for armpit. Oxter. 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 Is your oxter moist? <laughs> <laughs> Another cold open. Right, oh, great. my goodness. There's too many to choose from in this one. All right. Well, that will do it for us this week, for sure. Uh, Alan, how could people find out what you have going on on the interwebs? Just connect with me on Facebook. I do have an Instagram, but um, go ahead and friend me on Facebook at Rev Alan O'Brien. Casey. You can find me um, on Twitter and my blog at The Queerly Faithful Pastor. Raj. You can find me at Facebook, facebook.com slash... Rev Raj Rambob, and I have just joined Twitter at Raj Rambob. Just getting going there. Ooh, new, new to the Twitterverse, huh? It's so like old man to take this long to get on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, as for me, you can follow me on all the socials at Jeff Manildi and listen on the second and fourth Thursday of every month or most months or a few months to my other podcast, Divine Cinema at divinecinema.net, where we discuss faith in film. Uh, as for Irenacast, don't forget to subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. We're available on all major podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and many more. And while you're there, if the platform allows it, leave us a rating and or review. We're always looking for more and more ways to hear from you. You can also fill out our listener survey at irenacast.com slash survey. The information you give is super helpful for us as we move forward and continue to evolve the show. That's irenacast.com slash survey uh so for this week i'm jeff it's your boy alan i'm casey 
This is Raj. Thanks for joining the conversation. 